0: Turn to Mark chapter 11, if you would. Mark chapter 11. And by the way, let me just say this. I didn't mean to be cryptic in my prayers, but as we prayed for the Tinius family, they had to put down a very beloved horse in their family, which was very difficult. So that's what we were praying for um, this morning in our prayer time. Um, Mark chapter 11, uh, we'll be looking at verses 27 through uh, chapter 12, verse 12. So give attention to God's word this morning. And they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him, and they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me and they discussed it with one another saying if we say from heaven we will say uh, he will say why then did you not believe him but shall we say from man they were afraid of the people for they all held that john really was a prophet so they answered jesus we don't know and jesus said to them neither will i tell you by what authority i do these things and he began to speak to them in parables and him they killed and so with many others some they beat some they killed he had still one other a beloved son finally he sent him to them saying they will respect my son but those tenants said to one another this is the heir come let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours and they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard what will the owner of the vineyard do he will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is what the Lord's doing and is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went their way. Amen. You may be seated. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You so much for Your Word that You give to us. Father, um, we just pray this morning that Your Spirit would be at work in our midst. Oh God, it is our prayer that He would be at work and do the work of faith. That God, that we might know you we might trust you but lord we particularly pray for those that may be here today whose hearts may have been hardened and we just implore on their behalf oh god that you would open their ears and their eyes to hear and to see the truth oh god as we know that you are a god that pursues those who are lost we thank you and pray this in your name amen this morning, uh, the sermon's going to be just a little bit different than it typically is. Where I, I just want to look at the passage, almost do a little bit of a commentary on, uh, through the passage, and then at the end, to make a number of observations and applications that we might consider this morning as we look at this text. As we come to, to Mark's Gospel, uh, for those of you that's not been with us through this series uh, we have to understand that, that Mark, is as we come to this point, this is the last week of Jesus' life. It's actually Tuesday of the last week of his life. Things are, are getting more tense between Jesus and the religious leaders. If we might back up a little bit and look outward at the big picture, uh, we began Mark's gospel by seeing that Jesus had a tremendous ministry in uh, Galilee and the surrounding areas. Cro- he drew crowds around him. People were following him. And uh, and he enjoyed that ministry but as he went on he began to pull away from the crowds. He began to spend more time with his disciples and as he did that he began to move towards Jerusalem and, uh, and the, you could imagine how the disciples must have gotten excited about that as they uh, just began to think, well, maybe this is it. Maybe Jesus is coming to Jerusalem to take his throne and to expel the Romans that um, are dominating us. And so Jesus does come into Jerusalem. And he does, in a very public way, proclaim that he is the Messiah. Maybe not in the way that the disciples would have expected, but very much in keeping with what the Old Testament scriptures say about the Messiah. And then as Jesus comes as king, then he also then turns his attention towards declaring judgment upon Israel, upon God's people for their unfaithfulness. And we saw last week uh, that illustrated in the fig tree. Do you remember Jesus is coming into Jerusalem and he sees a fig tree which has leaves but no fruit. Now, when the fig tree has leaves, it should have some fruit. Fruit, maybe not the most mature fruit, but it should have some fruit. But it had absolutely none. And so Jesus was, he actually cursed the tree. Not because he was upset, because he didn't get his breakfast. But he it was a picture of Israel. Excuse me a second, this is driving me nuts. Okay. He, he, it was a picture of Israel, of his people. That they looked very much on the outside, like they were very religious and they were following the Lord, but in reality there was no fruit that they were bearing. And so Jesus goes on into the city, into the temple itself, and rather than the temple being a place where people gathered to worship the Lord, and and as Isaiah talks about where, where God is calling in the nations to come and to worship Him, the the tabern, or the, the temple even having an outer court for the Gentiles to come for that very purpose, instead of it being full of people from all the nations worshiping the Lord, it was a huge flea market, or so, that kind of busyness. Uh, There was money changers, there were sacrifices being sold, and and things like that. And so Jesus cleanses the temple. And then, when he leaves to go back to where he's staying, um, and then comes back the next day, then his disciples comment about how that fig tree has died from from the roots up, showing the the total destruction and judgment of God's people. Well, it's the same day, and we read in verse 27, And they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. Now, you know, we've heard this story so many times, we can just sort of glance over the details of it, but as he talks about the chief, the scribes, and the elders, he's really talking about the Sanhedrin. That's what made up the Sanhedrin, and for those of you that may not know that, they were sort of the ruling body of the Jews. They would be sort of the liaison between the nation of Israel and the Roman Empire. Okay, and if if you know that when it came time to crucify Christ, they went to the Romans to seek for them to kill Christ. And so they were sort of that kind of body. They were also, though, the final court of appeals on matters regarding Jewish law and religion. So they were sort of like the religious supreme court of Jesus' day, if you would. And so they had all the religious authority in Christ's day. So understand the power that was in this group of 71 men. Now, when it says that the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders came to him... I really doubt that 71 men came. It was most likely probably a representation of the Sanhedrin that came and spoke to Jesus. We don't know for certain. But they wanted to know by what authority are you doing these things or who gave you this authority to do them. Now, these things here aren't exactly clear. Okay, Uh, Obviously, it seems like they're referring to when Jesus cleansed the temple, the turning over. Of the money changers' tables and the scattering of the livestock, but it could be that they were also referring to all the different things that Christ had done throughout His ministry. If you remember, in Mark chapter three, verse twenty-two, it talks about how the scribes came from Jerusalem uh, and they interacted with Jesus. You know, the the idea there is is that you know maybe they're they're uh, these. big shots in Jerusalem, these ecclesiastical big shots, are hearing about this young rabbi that's uh, been quite catching the attention of all the country. People are following him, they're talking about the things that they're doing, and so they they send these uh, scribes to sort of check it out, because Jesus is coming saying he has the power to forgive sins. He's coming saying that he accepts sinners, that tax collectors, he's eating with them and stuff. And he's also redefining the Sabbath day. And so the the top brass are are really questioning who this Jesus is. And, And they wanted to know. And now they've just had enough with what he's just recently done in the temple. And they want to know what authority do you have? I mean, this is the most powerful body of men in the Jewish nation. And Jesus says to them in verse 29, I will ask you one question, answer me. And I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. Now you get a sense from the English that Jesus is is not coming to them in a timid way. He is not intimidated by them in the slightest as a matter of fact, he sort of stands over authority over them. In the Greek, it's even more pronounced that, that he is uh, standing in authority, he's demonstrating his authority over the Sanhedrin uh, in his asking of this question. Um, not only that, but let me just uh, maybe answer this. Some people look at this and they think that Jesus is just being evasive. That, you know, he's just really not wanting to answer their question. So he's answering a question with a question, sort of to to dodge it. Uh, But that's not at all the case. You see, it was the baptism by John where the heavens were parted and the Holy Spirit descended upon Christ and God the Father said, this is my son. So the baptism of Jesus was the event that inaugurated his uh, exousia, his authority. to to do his ministry. Um, So if the Sanhedrin wants to know where Jesus received his authority to do these things, then they must reconsider John's baptism. So Christ's question was very pertinent to the question that, that they had. But there's another sense, too, in which Jesus knows that the question that they're asking is not a genuine question. And what I mean by that is they really didn't care what the answer was. They were really there more to trap him than to find out where his authority came from. If you would, turn over to to John's Gospel, John 3. And uh, this is the account of Nicodemus. John 3. It says, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. Actually, when, when it says that he's a ruler, he was actually a member of the Sanhedrin. He was part of this group that was represented before Jesus and it said this man came to Jesus by night and said to him rabbi i know that you are a teacher come from god for no one can do these signs that you do unless god is with him is that what he said for i know that you are a teacher from god is that what he said no he said for we know that you are a teacher of God. Now, that doesn't mean that every member of the Sanhedrin believed that Jesus was from God. This was early on in Jesus' ministry. But, but even at that, there had been enough that had been done to catch the attention of these religious leaders that some began to question and to think that maybe he was from God. I mean, you, you think about uh, the account where the Sanhedrin was meeting and they were talking about Christ and one man stood up and amongst the assembly and cautioned them about Christ and said, you know, he, he was making reference to previous rebellions that had occurred in the wilderness and how that had just died off. And he said, if Jesus is a, just another false teacher, and this is my translation, if he's just another false teacher, it's all going to come to nothing, people. You can just let it go. They're, they're eventually, you know, he'll die and his following will stop. But, if he is truly from God, then you are opposing God. And so there was a sense in which if they didn't understand fully who Christ was, they did have an understanding of who he claimed to be. And so Jesus knew that they didn't really want to know about his authority. They had already known that. So he asked them a question that they couldn't answer. Now, I'm not a good chess player, but I know people that are good chess players. And one thing I... Notice, and I don't know what it's called, some of you could probably tell me, but there's a move that you can make in chess that when you do it, then all of a sudden your opponent has to decide, which piece am I going to lose? Because you've put two two of their pieces in jeopardy at the same time, and they have to decide which one they're going to sacrifice. Well, this was sort of that kind of move for Jesus. He knew that they really couldn't answer these questions, because either way they did, they wouldn't get what they wanted. And, uh, you know, they were considering the question. Now, Jesus asked them, which which is true? Did John come from heaven or did he come from man? Now, the religious leaders, as they pondered that question, what's interesting is they weren't really considering what was true, were they? They were considering which one would give them the desired outcome. Now, some of you may say, well, that sounds like a politician. Well, that's probably not being fair to all politicians. Maybe some are like that. But... You know, that's sort of how they were thinking. Is, you know, what could give me the outcome that I want? And they realized that they would lose either way. So they say in verse 33, we don't know. To which Jesus said, neither will I tell you by what authority that I do these things. And so in one sense, Christ was seeking not to throw his pearls before swine. Because Jesus is saying to these men that really you are unworthy of hearing the truth. You are men who have shut your eyes to the truth, closed your hearts to the truth. You are men who obsessed with yourselves and your own petty little interests. You know, and there is a sense in which we can learn from this as we uh, interact with people, especially on social media. You know, sometimes we think that we have to argue over every little thing. But maybe there's people that uh, they really don't have an ear to hear the truth. They just want to argue. And with those people, it's probably better just to let it go. That's not the focus of this passage, but that, that is maybe something we could take away from this uh, as we interact with other people. But, um, but Jesus says, I will not tell you by what authority I do these things. You see, these men stood exposed before Jesus as he asked them this question. He exposed them for who they really were, peddlers of self-interest. They were followers of God, For what they could get out of their relationship with God, uh, they sought status and position and influence. That's really what they were. They wanted to follow God, but they also wanted to do what they wanted to do. They wanted the privileges and blessings of following God while at the same time doing what their will was. In one sense, brothers and sisters, they were playing games with God. And I think it's a fair for us to ask questions, especially as we have this text in front of us. Are we playing games with God? Are there times when, when we seek to avoid the truth? Um, that sense of our questioning God's authority can come in many different forms. Maybe one form is a duplicitous life where we're maybe living uh, the Christian life. We come to church, we tithe, we, we maybe help out. In Sunday school, we come to Bible study, we read theology, we do all these things. But yet, at the same time, there's sort of this secret life that we live where maybe we're viewing pornography or we have unbiblical relations with other people or, you know, we're stealing and stuff. And there's, there's this sin in our life. And, and it's not a sin that we're seeking to put to death. We're not trying to stop sinning. As a matter of fact, We love our sin as much as we love God, probably more than we love God. And so we're trying to have our cake and eat it too. And so that's one sense in which we can avoid the truth of what God's word says. But there's another sense that Jerry Bridges brings out in one of his books, and I've read so many of his over the years, I can't remember which one I got this from. But he talks about a speed limit sign versus the speed limit sign going around a curve. You know, there's the speed limit signs you see out on the interstate that say 75 miles an hour, and that is a command. That is a law of the Medes and Persians, right? If you break that, then you could be pulled over, especially this weekend, probably. This is probably true. But that's always the case. Now, I know many Christians see it more as a suggestion, but the reality is in our land, it's a law, it's a command. Whereas the speed limit sign of going around a curve is a suggestion. It's, it's saying that the conditions are such that when it's the ideal, temp- or ideal weather, this is how fast you should go around. So we're suggesting you only go this fast. But it's not a command. And what Bridges was bringing out in his book, in this illustration, was how many times do we as Christians take the commands of God and we really interpret them really more as suggestions? That it's something that if we decide that we want to do it, we will. And so we find ourselves, even as Christians, maybe uh, looking at the things that God says, and we are trying to determine what it is that we want to do and what we don't want to do. And so what we end up doing is following these things that God says, because this is to our liking, but these things over here that are not so much to our liking, that would cause us to put to death the things that we want to hang on to, we sort of ignore. Well, Jesus goes on to tell the parable of the wicked tenants. And you see Jesus, he wants to confront these religious leaders with who they are in the sight of God. And and they get an idea of what Jesus is doing. You see that in verse 12. They may not have understood completely what Jesus was saying, but they had an idea. And so in this parable, Jesus gives a summary, really of all redemptive history, of everything that's happened in the Old Testament up until this time. But if you would, turn to Isaiah chapter 5 Isaiah chapter 5 Jesus is basing this parable upon this passage of Isaiah 5 now if you look down at verse 7 you'll see that the vineyard that that the Lord is speaking is is really the house of Israel the men of Judah it is God's people is what it represents but let me read verses 1 through 5 Uh, Let me sing for my beloved, my love song of concern, his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. Which I'll just tell you. Grapes and wild grapes are not the same thing. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? As As Jesus hears, listen to this illustration, this passage would have come to their mind. It's just like for you this morning, if I say, the Lord is my shepherd, you might be thinking about John chapter 10, but most likely you're thinking about what? Kids? Psalm 23, right? You're thinking about that. You're going, yes, because you just that's so ingrained into your thinking. And it was the same way with these religious leaders as they thought about Israel as being the vineyard They're like, yes, that's Isaiah chapter 5. And so they would know what Jesus was talking about and that the vineyard was Israel. And they, as the religious leaders, were the tenants uh, of the vineyard. And so Jesus points out that the vineyard was not theirs. It belonged to God, that God had called this people out of Egypt, that He had given them the land. In essence, He had planted the nation of Israel, if I could use that kind of analogy, Uh, in the promised land to bear fruit for the glory of God. Now if you think about it, I know we've talked about this before, but the Lord put Israel in a very specific place. It was a very small piece of real estate, kids. Um, Wasn't really impressive. All around Israel were all these superpowers, all these mega nations, you know, like the United States uh, or Russia or China or, you know, other nations like that that had an enormous amount of influence. But the reason why God put them in this small piece of property is because all the travel routes led through Israel. And so as Israel bore fruit for the glory of God, as they functioned as God's people, they would have been a witness to the entire world by where they were located. And so uh, they would have uh, bore fruit and glorified his name. Now, what was the fruit that the Lord sought? Well, uh, didn't the Lord tell us? Um, let me read the words of Micah, chapter 6, verse 8. He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. As God's people would have walked humbly with him, they would have been a people who not only believed what God said in his commands, but there would have been a sense in which they would have lived that out in their life. Now, what would that look like? Well, there would have been a concern for justice. Now, I'm not talking about the social justice movement that you read so much in social media today. I'm talking about a biblical concern for justice, a true concern for justice. And not only that, but there would have been a love for, for kindness for as well. And God calls his church even in the New Testament to bear fruit as well. Turn if you would to John chapter 15. John 15 verse 16. Jesus said, you did not choose me but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. Now, why did Christ save us? Well, He chose us, and He, and he appointed us that so we would bear fruit. In other words, if you become a believer, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will bear fruit in your life, and that fruit will abide. So we, as God's people, as always been the case, is that when God works in the hearts and the lives of His people, then they bear fruit for the glory of God. Of God, And so it's only right that when the owner sends his servant at the harvest time to receive some of the produce of the vine, God um, demands fruit from his people. God looked for fruit, like in the fig tree. He looked to see that the privileges that he had blessed his people with had borne the fruit of righteousness and grace in their lives. But you, you see, Israel resented God's demand and denied what he sought. And when the servants arrived to get their portion of the fruit, we see that, first of all, in verse 3, that they beat the servant. Then they sent another servant. They struck him on the head and they humiliated him. And so they sent another one and they killed him. And then they sent others and they abused them as well. But then uh, we see that uh, they continue to rebel against the owner. So it's no wonder, as you think about this, and being the picture of God and Israel, that while he sent his prophets to them, that the people rejected them. No wonder Jesus wept over Jerusalem. We read in Luke 13, 34, Jesus saying, O Jerusalem, O Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who were sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. You know, when we think of judgment and God's judgment coming, we oftentimes think of it coming upon the world. But God, first and foremost, before he brings revival in a country, he brings judgment upon his church. He calls his people to repent of their sins and to turn to him anew and afresh in faith to trust him and to do what he says. And so Jesus gives sort of this panoramic view of redemptive history and in his summary Jesus kept saying to the religious leaders and you're just like your fathers. You do the same thing today. But God didn't stop even though he sent all the prophets of old, even all the way up to John the Baptist, now he sends his son. And we read in verse 6, where in the account the owner says, they will respect my son. But in verse 7 we read, but those tenants said to one another, this is the heir, come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So, So the wicked tenants Rather than seeing the owner's son as an opportunity to repent, they saw it as an opportunity for further rebellion. And so they took and they killed the son. And it's as if Jesus is saying to the religious leaders, look, I know what you're plotting and you're planning. And at this point in time, they would have had to say, what? You know, because they didn't even know yet. They knew they wanted to get rid of Jesus. They knew they wanted to arrest him. And actually, there'd been talk even of trying to kill him But they didn't have a well-formulated plan and how that was going to happen. And yet Jesus knew that it was. And He also knew that in planning what they were going to do, they were ultimately serving God's purpose. And so Jesus says to the religious leaders in verse 10, He quotes Psalm 118, verses 22 and 23. He said, "...the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing." It is marvelous in our eyes." Now, there's a tradition, and I do want to emphasize that this is just a tradition that's dating from the building of Solomon's temple regarding this theme. Don't know whether it's true or not, but uh, we do know that it is true that when Solomon's temple was built, that the architect designed all the cuts for the stones, and they would send that information to the quarry and then they would cut the stones and make all the noise and the mess there, and then they would transport the stones to the building site, and then the builders would put the temple together. Kids, it's sort of like a a puzzle factory versus you putting the puzzle together. It was sort of that kind of relationship. So they were cutting the pieces over here, and they were putting them together here. And early on in the project, a stone was sent up that didn't seem to fit anywhere. And so they just sort of threw that stone off to the side and they began to get the temple all together and it was getting near completion. And they sent word to the quarry that we now need the cornerstone. And they said, well, we sent that up a long time ago. And they described what that was to look like. And the cornerstone was the stone that that fit in last and was the stone that held all the other stones together. And so these uh, builders then began to look for that stone, and they found it and realized their mistake, and they put it in place, and it fit perfectly and completed that building. Um, The stone the builders rejected had become the cornerstone, just as Jesus Christ was rejected, so he would become the one on whom our salvation depends shortly Jesus the Messiah would be rejected not only by the religious leaders by all, but by all the people and as tragic as that may sound what God is doing is a great and an awesome work and one that we can rejoice in but these religious leaders had set their hearts against Jesus and against his authority now let me just give you some words of application as we uh, move closer to a close on this First of all, uh, I want you to see God's perseverance towards His wayward church. God's perseverance towards His wayward church. You see that in verses 5 and 6, where God keeps sending prophets one after another to warn His people, even though Israel kept mistreating them and killing them. Just like Isaiah 5, verse 4 says, What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? In other words, God says, I've done everything. I've sent you my prophets. I've continued to, to pursue you as a people, even though you're rebellious of heart, even though you didn't want anything to do with me. And so was it God's fault that Israel was fruitless? No, obviously not. But I want us to see as, as we look at that, and hopefully that encourages us, You know, even in our walk with the Lord, that God never gives up on his people. But we also need to understand that there's a principle here for us to take deeply to heart. And it has really a double-edged sword on it. First of all, one side of it says that God is rich in His mercy and in persevering towards His people. Again and again, He comes to wayward people. And you and I, we understand that. That's where we live. And we're so thankful that God is long-suffering. But the other side of that is, is that there will come a time... When God will say, no more, your time is up, grace is ended, and judgment begins. If nothing else, at the end of time, Christ will stand, not as the Savior of the world, but as the judge. And he will judge every person for where they are. And God had done all that could be expected and more uh, in regards to his people and the extent of his grace as his as the extent of his grace increased to the full so did the extent of the guilt of God's people in Israel and Jesus says in verse 9 what will the owner of the vineyard do he will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others you see God is patient but there is an end to that grace an end that has reached in Israel's rejection in the fall of the temple in 70 AD. So what about us today in terms of God's perseverance with his wayward church? Whatever we do, brothers and sisters, we must not trifle with God. We must not play with him. Don't confuse God's patience with sinners as indifference to sin. This is a call to us to not harbor sin, not to to keep some pet sin in our lives and try to live a, a duplicitous life where we're walking with Christ and yet not. It is, a sin of, it is a sense of understanding what God has called us to. Don't think because God holds back from executing final irreversible judgment on the wicked world that God really doesn't care that much about sin. Don't be like the wicked tenant who saw the owner's son and instead of repenting, saw this as an opportunity to advance rebellion. Paul talks about this in Romans 6 and 7, does he not? He said, you know, grace has abounded. Does that mean then that I could just sin? I mean, I, I, I hear that same argument today in the church, where if, if someone is confronted with their sin, their response is, oh, it's okay, Jesus will just forgive me. In other words, I can walk into known sin with an unrepented heart, and it's okay because Jesus will just wipe away that sin. Paul says... Heck no! That's not what he said. But, you know, he said, no way. That's not the way it works. That God, if He changes us, He changes our heart. The day came when God brought astonishing judgment on Israel. The second thing I want us to see in application is don't confuse covenant privilege for the work of the Holy Spirit. Don't confuse Covenant privilege for the work of the Holy Spirit. Covenant privilege and blessing uh, are no substitute for faith, love, and obedience for the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. To visibly be part of God's people is no guarantee that you belong to God. Kids, what that means is just because you grow up in the church doesn't mean you're a Christian. The, The religious leaders oversaw God's people and yet they didn't belong to God. It's so easy for us uh, because we are no different at heart to somehow allow ourselves to sink into the deceitful thought that we are God's covenant people. Either because we believe that we have somehow chose God and uh, so you know we've made a decision for Him so we're His people or because we enjoy the blessings of the covenant community and so we think that we just automatically belong to God. And covenant children, I especially want to appeal to you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't come to church and think, you know, I really don't care much about God. The things of God sort of bore me. But it's okay. I'm good because I grew up in a Christian home. Or I'm good because I come to Kirk of the Plains. So it's all right. That's not what God calls us to. He calls us to have faith in Him. Do you remember Paul's lament? over Israel in Romans chapter 9 look at Romans 9 if you would uh, beginning with verse 3 Paul says for I could wish for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers my kinsmen according to the flesh they are Israelites and to them belong the adoption the glory, the covenants the giving of the law the worship and the promises to them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. You see what they, he's saying? He's saying these are people who are, have all the covenant blessings. They have the covenants. They have the giving of the law. They have the temple service. They have the worship. They have God's promise. They belong part to the covenant community. For us, we might say, well, we have the sacraments. We preach the word. We have access to the word of God. We can listen to sermons 24 7 on the internet. We have the church. We have the Christian home. We have all those privileges. And yet, what does Paul say? He says, But in light of that, I have only one wish that they could be saved. You see, they were covenant people, but they were outside of Christ because they were without faith. Every covenant privilege, listen to this, brothers and sisters. Every covenant privilege and every covenant sign becomes a sign of condemnation, not a sign of blessing without faith. Without faith, every covenant privilege and every covenant sign becomes a sign of condemnation, not a blessing. Where are we putting our hope today? If you're here today... And you think, well, I've been brought up in a Christian home, so, so I'm fine. Even though my life doesn't look much like a Christian life, I'm, I'm fine. Um, I'm here to tell you that's not true. If someone were to ask you today, why do you think you're going to heaven? What would you say? Would you say, because the Son of God loved me and gave himself for me? Is that what you would say? Or, or would you say, because the Son of God loved me and gave himself for me, and he, in doing so, he so changed my heart that I now love him more than anything else. Doesn't mean I don't, still am not tempted to sin. I do still sin, but I love him more. And I wanna do everything I can to be freed from this sin that plagues me. I love him so much that the reason I wanna to go to heaven is to be with him. As a matter of fact, I can't wait till that time becomes a reality. I want to be with Him. Is that where your hope lies this morning? The third application I want us to see very quickly. Are you with Christ or are you against Him? You see, God has exalted Jesus and made Him the cornerstone of a new heavens and a new earth. And in His resurrection, God publicly vindicated His beloved Son. And the resurrection is the public sign that all who reject Him are fighting against God the one God has established as the chief cornerstone. You see, in Matthew's account of what we read here in Mark, he actually adds something different to the ending of this. Matthew says, And the one who falls on this stone, that is on the cornerstone, will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. And what Jesus is saying is, I am the chief cornerstone, and your life will either be built upon me as the chief cornerstone, where I will crush you into endless oblivion. Because Jesus is Lord. And be assured, brothers and sisters, the day is coming, it's been ordained by God and decreed by Him, that when every, that every person will bow and proclaim that Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone. You know, as we think about this this morning, it's, it's never easy to hear about judgment. But it is interesting to see the number of times that God even comes to his church and calls her to faith in him. That doesn't mean that we have to doubt our salvation if we are trusting wholly upon Jesus Christ. If the Holy Spirit of God is working in our hearts, we can trust that Christ has become uh, the curse for us. That the judgment that is due upon us has been paid. But if we are here today and we are just playing games with God, then He's calling us to account today. But praise God, He's not calling us to judgment today. It is still the time to repent and to trust in Him. How would you answer the question the religious leaders ask in verse 28? By what authority has Jesus come? If Jesus has come by the authority of God, then His will is to trump our will. It's not for me to decide, Lord, what do I want to obey and what do I not want to obey? It is, Lord, not my will, but Your will be done. It is a sense in which there is such a hunger to know God's will And desirous to submit to it. That we do anything to follow him. Let us not be like the religious leaders. Who wanted to appear to be following God. Only as a facade so that they could do. And live life the way that they wanted to do it. So what's the lesson this morning as we walk away? It's simply this. You will not truly confess Jesus as the Christ until you are willing to bow to His authority as your Savior, your Lord, and your Teacher. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You so much for Your Word that You have given us today. Lord, help us to take to heart the things that, that we have heard this morning. We pray for Your Holy Spirit, oh God, to search our hearts. It is so easy, God, to be blind and not even know that we're blind. At least spiritually speaking. Physically we would know that we can't see, but spiritually we can think we see so clearly when reality we don't. And so God, please would you search our hearts and reveal to us, Lord, where where we stand with you. And Lord, if there if there is sin that we are seeking to hold on to, to to love like you Oh, God, that you would open our eyes and humble (coughs) us before you, that we would repent and turn to you and trust in you alone, Lord, not seeking to live our lives the way we want. And I pray, God, not just for us as as individuals, but us as a church and for the church in, in America and around the world today. Lord, there's so many people that are leaving the church And maybe it is that they are people who are professing Christ and and yet they're not with you. They're not truly yours. But Lord, there may be another sense in which your church is just bearing leaves but no fruit. So God, I pray that you would work in our hearts as a church and show us our sin that we might repent and turn to you. We ask in your name. Amen.